All right, let's open up our Bibles to Daniel, if you have a Bible, to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. The title of this message is called Sanctuary Secrets. It's part of a larger series that I have called Get Ready, Get Ready, Get Ready. And we're going to be dealing with issues that have to do with our preparation for the coming of Jesus, which is getting closer and closer. So this is called Sanctuary Secrets. There you see the title on the wall there as the projector is showing that. And I'd like to start with Daniel 8.14. And why don't we read this text and then we will, we will pray. Daniel 8.14. Some of you know this verse well. The Bible says, And he said to me, For 2,300 days... Then what will happen? Right. Then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Uh, if you are able to kneel or just remain seated, but I'd like to kneel and I'd like to pray as we start. So just bow your heads and whatever you'd like to do, that's fine. So let's pray that God will bless as we study the Bible together. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for another chance to be here at the SoCal Camp Meeting in California. Thank you for this wonderful group of people that are here. And we pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, our precious Savior, that your Holy Spirit will bless as we spend this time together looking at the sanctuary and the practical lessons that we can learn for our own lives. Please help us and bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Sanctuary Secrets. You are probably aware, many of you, if not most of you, or maybe even all of you, that the Seventh-day Adventist Church rose up in the 1830s and 40s and 50s and early 60s, and at the, at the heart of this movement that I believe God raised up in the 1800s was a message about the sanctuary. It is interwoven with who we are as a people, the message of the sanctuary. And so today I'd like us to take a look at quite a few verses. We'll look at some Old Testament verses. We'll go into the New Testament and then we'll finally go into the book of Revelation and then we will see the power of the sanctuary, what it means, how it points to Jesus and how it reveals what Jesus longs to do in our lives today. So I wanna make this as simple as I can. I've got my slides here on the screen. It goes back to the days of Moses, a long, long time ago. God brought Israel out of Egypt. He brought them out, and he brought them into the wilderness. He brought them to a mountain. That illustrates Mount Sinai there on the screen. He had the Israelites camp all around the mountain, and then he gave them special instructions that they were supposed to build a building. And that building was called the sanctuary. Here's a verse in Exodus 25, verse eight, where God spoke to Moses and he said, let them make me a sanctuary. And the purpose of that sanctuary, one of the main purposes was so that God could dwell in the middle of his people. So they went to work and they built this building. And here is sort of a bird's eye view 
of the outside of the sanctuary, there was a, a white curtain that went around the outside. This inner area was referred to as the courtyard. An Israelite would come into this courtyard with an animal and the animal would be sacrificed and portions of its body would be burned on this altar called the altar of burnt offering. There was also another little basin here which was called the laver where the priests would wash their hands and they would go into the sanctuary, this building itself, this also called the tabernacle, and it had two rooms. It had a room called the holy place and a room called the most holy place. Here's a, a view into the holy place. The holy place had different articles of furniture. It had a golden lamp stand that was always burning. There were lights burning in the sanctuary. There was a table, you can hardly see it in this picture, but there was a table with stacks of bread, two stacks of bread called the table of showbread. There was an altar called the golden altar of incense and the incense would go up and there was a curtain between the holy place and the most holy place. When you go through the curtain into the most holy place, the main article of furniture there was a box, a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. There were two angels that were coming out, golden angels out of the top of that box. They were actually coming out of, a, of the top here which was a golden lid called the mercy seat. And inside of these two angels, in the middle, there was a, a light called the Shekinah. And the light was the presence of God. God was actually there in the most holy place. And if you were to lift up the lid of the golden box, the mercy seat, and lift this up, you would find a number of articles of furniture in there. There was a, a pot of manna. There was Aaron's rod that budded. And then the most important article was the tables of stone written with the finger of God, the Ten Commandments. So that is just a quick overview of the courtyard and the holy place and the most holy place. Now what happened in Old Testament days was that when a person was convicted that he had sinned, and when I say sinned, that means that he, had, he or she had broken the Ten Commandments that were in the most holy place. Then he was instructed to bring an animal. Many times it was a lamb. Uh, and they would bring this, the sinner would bring his lamb into the courtyard. And here is the person here. Here is the animal. And then there was a priest that met him in the courtyard. And the priest had a knife. And the person was instructed, the person who had sinned, to take his hands and to place his hands on the head of the animal and then to confess over the animal his sins, where he had broken the Ten Commandments. And I, I've been told, it's, I guess it's a tradition, I don't know if it actually happened or not, but I've been told that the, the priests instructed the person to point the head of the animal toward the ark, where the law was. And as he pointed his head there, that again emphasized the fact that what was about to happen was because the person had broken the Ten Commandments which were inside of the ark. And then he put his hands on the head of the animal. He confessed his sins or whatever sin he had committed over the animal's head, representing the sin being transferred from the person over onto the innocent animal. And then the priest would hand the person the knife. And the, pri the priest did not slay the sacrifice. 
It was the sinner who slayed the sacrifice. So he had to take, after he put his hands on his head, confessed his sins over it, symbolically transferring his sins from himself to the animal, then he had to take the knife himself. And he had to put the knife underneath the throat of that animal, and then he had to uh, probably close his eyes, maybe say a prayer for strength to do it, and then he had to slice the throat of that animal. Now, I don't know how many of you are animal lovers here. How many of you have pets? Let me just see, a, a lot of you do. We have, my, my family has a, a dog named Puka. We have three cats, and we love animals. Uh, and, and I thought about this, that this would be very, very difficult for me to do, to kill an animal with my own hands, especially a nice, uh, soft, friendly-looking lamb. It was, a, it was a, a, a gory ritual. It really was. It was a difficult ritual. Now, why in the world would, would a God of love who made human beings and who made animals, why did he command his people to participate in such a gory ritual? The reason is, that's right, somebody said he wants them to understand sin. He wants us, this was like a shock treatment to impress the Israelites and hopefully us that sin is very, very serious, that sin leads to death, that sin is a, is a disaster. And I'm sure it was God's plan that when the person had to kill that animal, that hopefully he wouldn't go out and just continue to commit the same sins. Uh, these, this was God's way of trying to teach people the seriousness of sin, and not only that, but it was designed to teach people the amazing wonders of grace. That sacrifice, and not just that one, but there were thousands, there were probably millions of animals that were sacrificed in the course of the history of the sacrificial system. Those sacrifices represented somebody. Every single one of them, every drop of blood that was shed, pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice of who? Jesus. Of Jesus Christ, that's right. And so some people say, well, the Old Testament had just has the law and the New Testament has the gospel. But that's not true. There's a whole lot of gospel in the Old Testament. The law was in the Old Testament, but so was the gospel. You have the Ten Commandments in the most holy place, but you have the lambs that were slain in the courtyard. And this happened day after day after day after day. And those Israelites who had spiritual per, uh, perception and discernment, they were able to recognize in the shadows, in the shadows of the sacrifice, that this sacrifice and all these sacrifices pointed forward to the coming of God's sacrifice, God's lamb, who was Jesus Christ. And so the sanctuary reveals the gospel. It reveals the plan of salvation. It teaches us the holiness of God's law and it teaches us the seriousness of sin and it teaches us the wonders of the grace of God in sending his own son to pay the price for our sins. Now, what happened back in the Old Testament was the, the priest would then have a basin and he would put the basin underneath the neck of the animal whose throat had a knife slicing through it. And this basin would then catch the blood. The blood would drip down into this basin. And the priest would then, he would sprinkle some of the blood around the horns of the altar of burnt offering in the courtyard, but he would also go into the holy place 
and he would take that blood. Here you see him with the basin and he puts his finger in the basin, in the blood. The blood then stains his finger and then he puts that blood on the horns of the altar of incense, the horns. And the, I, I've been thinking about this recently that when you look up different verses in the Bible, it seems to me that horns represent power. Horns represent power. And putting blood on the horns of the altar in the court and the altar of incense inside the holy place is God's way of trying to, to teach us the power of the blood of Christ. That Jesus' blood has power to cleanse us from sin. And he would also sprinkle some of that blood on the, on the base of the altar of incense. Now, this was a symbolic ritual that happened day after day after day, and this was God's way of trying to illustrate symbolically that the sin went from the sinner into the animal, into the blood. The priest took the blood and he put it in the sanctuary, and that was God's way of trying to illustrate that the sin was being transferred, because of sin, it was being transferred into the sanctuary, and the sanctuary was then becoming symbolically defiled because the sin was pouring in there day after day after day into the sanctuary. So now the sin ended up in the sanctuary through the blood. Now, this went on day by day in the Old Testament during the Israelite year. And there was one day, a special day, one day a year, Leviticus 23 verse 27 says it was on the 10th day of the seventh month that there shall be a day of what? A day of atonement, right? This was a, a high day, a special day. And the word atonement basically means at one mint. It was a special day of full uh, unity where the sins which had been transferred into the sanctuary and the person was forgiven. He walked away forgiven, but the sin symbolically was still there. It was still recorded in the sanctuary. And God's plan was to remove that sin on the day of atonement. It was a day for the cleansing of the sanctuary. Okay, we just, oh, there we go. We lost our image for some reason, but it's back. The cleansing of the sanctuary on the day of atonement. Now, it's very interesting what happened on the day of atonement. It's described in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. Let's take a look at Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 and let's look at verse 19. You can read the whole chapter sometime about all the different things that happened on the Day of Atonement. But what happened on the Day of Atonement was the, the high priest. Now, during the other days, it was the priests. But on the Day of Atonement, it was the high priest. And the high priest on the Day of Atonement would sacrifice an animal. He sacrificed different animals. And if you look at verse 19, different things happened. But in verse 19, it said he would, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times. Now what happened was on the day of atonement, the high priest, or actually I, I forgot to show you this slide. 10 days prior to the day of atonement was called the, the day of the trumpets, the blowing of the trumpets. 
and the priests would blow the trumpet so the Israelites all over the camp would realize that they've got 10 days to get ready for the Day of Atonement because this is a very, very solemn and important day. And on that day alone, the high priest took the blood of a sacrifice and he went, he went into the holy place, he put blood on the altar of incense, and then he went into the most holy place, which nobody ever went into except the high priest on the Day of Atonement. He went into the most holy place to, with blood to sprinkle blood on top of the golden lid called the mercy seat underneath which was the Ten Commandments. And if you just look at the finger there, you'll see the dripping down of the blood, the cleansing blood. Now, verse 19 says, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from all of the uncleanness or of the sins of the children of Israel. He did this to the golden altar and he also did this on top of the mercy seat. Now, the, the number seven is a perfect number. It's God's perfect number. He made the world in six days and he rested on the seventh day. And it's very clear from this text, from verse 19, that what happened on the Day of Atonement was a special cleansing. Verse 30, if you look at verse 30, it says, for on that day, the priest, referring to the high priest, shall make an atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Now it's interesting that verse 19 says that the blood would cleanse it, referring to the sanctuary. But verse 30 says who was to be cleansed? God said it was to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So the purpose of the Day of Atonement was to cleanse the sanctuary, that's the it part, and it was also to cleanse the people from their sins before God. Now what the Israelites were supposed to be doing on the Day of Atonement when the high priest went into the most holy place and they couldn't see him in there because he disappeared inside the temple, the Israelites were instructed to gather all around the outside of the, of the tabernacle and they were to be praying. They were to be uh, asking God that as the high priest is in there cleansing the sanctuary, they were to be praying, dear God, please cleanse me. Please cleanse me. God is not interested in just cleansing a building. God is interested most of all in cleansing people. And this was his, this is almost like a, like a, uh, a sandbox illustration of the plan of salvation. It's, it's a way that God is trying to teach his people that sin defiles and that God wants to ultimately and completely cleanse his people. And when the Israelites, they were supposed to be afflicting their souls on the Day of Atonement, which means humbling themselves, confessing their sins, asking that God would cleanse them as well. And those who refused to participate in the Day of Atonement, who decided, well, we're not really interested in this, we'll just go take a walk or we'll sit down, we'll play cards. Uh, those people, the Bible says in Leviticus 23, they were, they were going to be cut off, cut off from Israel. So people were either cut off or they were cleansed depending upon what they 
chose to do on the Day of Atonement? Did they want to be clean or did they, did they not? So the Day of Atonement was really also considered a day of judgment. It was a final time for the people of Israel to decide, what do you want? Do you want to be cleansed or do you want to be cut off? That was the, the option that they had available to them. Now, all of that happened day after day after day after day in the Old Testament sanctuary service. Now, we started our afternoon meeting by looking at Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. Daniel 8, 14 is the verse that we opened with says, and I'll put this verse also on the screen. Oh, there it is. Daniel 8, 14. He said to me, and this is an angel talking to Daniel, one of the greatest prophets in the Bible. He said to me, for 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So here is a prediction that there is going to be another sanctuary and there is going to be another cleansing that's going to go on. Now, let me just give you some interesting pieces of, of information. Most Christians in other churches outside the Seventh-day Adventist church, it's pretty easy for them to recognize that the sacrificial system and the offering of the lambs, the offering of, of all of these uh, animals and, and their, their deaths that happen in the courtyard, that these the deaths of the animals pointed forward to the coming of Jesus. That's a, that's a pretty generally recognized fact in most Christian churches, whether they go to church on Saturday or whether they go to church on Sunday. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty basic. But Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists, take this a little bit further. And Adventists believe that just like there was an earthly sanctuary, so there is a heavenly sanctuary. And just like there was a ministration or a ministry in the holy place and in the most holy place, that Jesus in his heavenly ministry as our high priest also has a ministry or had a ministry in the holy place and then transitioned into a ministry in the most holy place. Now, it's that idea that has been challenged by a lot of Christian churches. Uh, they've come to the conclusion that we're really all wet on that and that this really isn't right, that the sanctuary service points to the cross, but that's it. They don't see that we go into the, there's a holy place ministry, and they definitely don't see that there is a most holy place ministry. Now, I want to I wanna talk about this with you, and then I want to go to the book of Revelation, and I want to take a look and see whether Revelation supports a holy place ministry and a most holy place ministry. Now, today, I don't really have time. I've, I've got so much to, to uh, cover. I don't really have time to study with you the details of the 2300-day prophecy. This is the prophecy that really began the Advent movement. Our early pioneers in the 1830s read this prophecy and they concluded that the 2300-day prophecy ended in 1844. And they concluded that the cleansing of the sanctuary was the end of the world, the cleansing of the earth by fire. 
If you read the book, The Great Controversy, written by Ellen White, it goes all through this. It goes through the 2300 days, when it starts, when it ends, uh, in 1844, what happened to the early uh, Millerites, the early Adventists who believed that prophecy. And what happened was they believed that the sanctuary would be cleansed. They believed the 2300 days ended in 1844, and they believed that was the end of the world. And what happened was 1844 came and went, and Jesus didn't come. It wasn't the end of the world. And so they, uh, a lot of people that watched the Millerites and the Adventists, they said, you see, you guys are just all wrong. You're just all wrong. And what happened was, as the Adventists continued to study their Bibles after 1844 and different things happened, they came to the conclusion that the sanctuary is not on earth, it's up there. It's in heaven. And the cleansing of the sanctuary has to do with Jesus switching his ministry from the holy place into the most holy place to cleanse the sanctuary, representing ultimately his final work to cleanse his people on earth from sin so they could be ready for his second coming. Now what has happened beyond 1844 is a lot of other churches, they look at all of this and they say, this is all just a big uh, face-saving conclusion that we've come up with. That Adventists just made a big mistake in 1844, Jesus didn't come, and they, they just really mock the whole idea of there being a holy place ministry and a most holy place. They, they don't agree with the Adventist unfolding understanding that the sanctuary is really up there, and now Jesus is in the most holy place. They, they don't believe in that, and they think that we are just all mixed up. All, oh my. <laughs> and the question is, are we all mixed up? Or is this really what the Bible says? Well, let's, let's talk about this from Scripture. Now, go back to Daniel chapter 8. Right after Daniel had an angel come and tell him that there would be a 2300-day prophecy and then the sanctuary would be cleansed, verse 15 says, Then it happened, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, trying to understand the meaning of this vision, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. Someone all of a sudden stood in front of Daniel who looked like a man as Daniel is trying to figure out this very prophecy. And it says that then he heard a man's voice in verse 16 from between the banks of the Ulai. Daniel had this vision and he was brought uh, before a river, the Ulai River, and he heard a voice speaking from above this river, between the banks of the river, and the voice called out and said to the being that Daniel saw standing right in front of him, and the voice said, Gabriel, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So this man that's standing in front of Daniel, who has the appearance of a man, he is really Gabriel. And in verse 17, it says, he came near where I stood. Gabriel started walking over to Daniel. And when he came, I was afraid and I fell on my face. But he said to me, the angel said to me, understand, son of man, for the vision refers to what time? For the time of the end. Now, I want to unpack this a little bit. When the voice said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision uh, this is very, very significant. Gabriel, we know from our study of the Bible, is not a normal man. We know that he is an angel from God. 
The name Gabriel appears only in two basic sections in the Bible. In the Old Testament, his name appears in Daniel 8 and 9 in connection with this particular 2300 day vision. And then he also shows up in Luke chapter one where he was sent by God to do two things. He announced not only, well first of all, Gabriel came and told Zechariah in the temple that he was gonna have a son. And that son was gonna be John the Baptist who would prepare the way for the Lord. And then it, Gabriel came back in Luke chapter one and he appeared to a woman in a town called Nazareth whose name was Mary and the Bible is very clear that it was Gabriel who was sent to Mary to announce to her that she was going to have a baby boy. And that baby boy was Jesus Christ. Now, my point in going into this with you is to impress you with something. And that is this, that Gabriel is no small fry when it comes to missions from God. Uh, I personally believe that Gabriel took the place of Lucifer. That when Lucifer fell, Gabriel took his place. I personally believe he is the highest angel in heaven. And Gabriel never goes on minor missions. Never. He, he's the one in the New Testament who announced the birth of Jesus and who announced the birth of John the Baptist. That shows he's a pretty important angel. Wouldn't you agree? And it is the same angel, Gabriel, that was specifically sent from God to help Daniel to understand the vision of the 2300 days and the cleansing of the sanctuary. That tells me that Daniel chapter eight, verses 14 to 17, this 2300 cleansing of the sanctuary vision is very, very important. And those that say the Adventists are all mixed up, if you ask them, can you explain to me Daniel 8, 14 to 17? Why God sent the angel Gabriel? Why this vision is so important? And why this vision applies to the time of the end? They will not have an answer for you. They will not have an answer for you. At least a good answer. They won't. So there's more to this topic than meets the eye. This is very, very important. And I wanna zero in specifically, again, on the text, Daniel 8:14. After 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And verse 17, Gabriel told Daniel to understand that at the time of the end, shall be the vision. This tells us that this is an end time prophecy that we need to understand and that's very important and that was given by God to the highest angel in heaven. Are you following me? I tell you, this is, uh, this is very exciting information. So we know from the text that there is gonna be a sanctuary that's gonna be cleansed. We know that. And we know that it's supposed to apply to the time of the end. We know that. But now the next question is, what temple or what sanctuary is this talking about? If you go over to the Middle East, if you go to Jerusalem, if you go on top of the, what's called the Temple Mount, 
where the Jewish temple used to sit until it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, there is no Jewish temple left on top of that mountain. It's just not there. What's there now is a, is a golden domed building called the Dome of the Rock. It is a Muslim building. It is probably that whole place is probably one of the hottest pieces of real estate on planet Earth. That's where the Jewish temple used to be and now that's where the Muslim temple is. And so when the prophecy says that the sanctuary is gonna be cleansed in the time of the end, that's what Gabriel said, then the question is, well, what, what sanctuary is this talking about? Is there gonna be some kind of big earthquake over in Jerusalem that's going to uh, break down, that the ground's gonna open up and the dome of the rock is gonna just fall apart and that's gonna give the Israelis an opportunity to quickly go in there, go up there and rebuild the Jewish temple. Is that what's gonna happen? A lot of people think that, that's, that something like that's gonna happen, that Jewish people are gonna rebuild their temple. I tell you, if the Jewish people ever did rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount, first of all, uh, they'd have a huge war with Islam, bigger than they already have. Uh, not only that, but if they ever started sacrificing animals again, you'd have every animal rights activist around the world up in arms. They're actually killing lambs or killing cows. Now, I personally, I don't think that's gonna happen. I just don't. When Jesus died on the cross, when he died on the cross, Matthew 27 says that the veil of the, of the temple, the earthly temple, was ripped from top to bottom. That's in Matthew 27. When Jesus said, it is finished, the veil in the temple separating the holy place from the most holy place was ripped from top to bottom. Now, the fact that it was ripped from top to bottom, not from bottom to top, tells us something. And what it tells us is that man did not rip that temple or rip that veil. It wasn't ripped, if, if man would have ripped it, they would have ripped it from the bottom up. But it was ripped from the top down, which illustrates that it was God who probably sent an angel to rip that veil. And the reason why that happened was because that was God's way of telling the world that the earthly temple was done. The earthly temple is over. And the reason why the earthly temple is over is because hanging on a cross was his own son. Jesus as the lamb, the lamb of God who fulfilled all the prophecies, born in Bethlehem, betrayed by a friend, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, step by step by step, the prophecies were fulfilled. And when Jesus said, it is finished, he was the sacrifice, he was the lamb, and it was over. No more earthly sacrifices ever again. Hallelujah. The, the earthly temple is done. It's done. Now, I've, I've thought about this, that let's just say the Jewish people were to rebuild that temple and, and were to restart sacrifices, which I think is pretty, pretty much impossible. But if they were to do that anyway, what would that be saying to God? If they started more sacrifices, what would they be saying to God by doing that? That's right, it would be, it would be a, an official Israeli rejection of Jesus Christ, absolutely. And it, so if it would be a rejection of Christ, then that temple could not be a temple that God could bless. 
It would be an antichrist temple because it would be against Jesus. And really, when you really study prophecy, that's really not what the prophecy says. The earthly temple is over. The sacrifices are done. And when Gabriel said, at the end of the 2300 days, or the prophecy says, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, that cannot refer to the earthly temple. It just can't, especially in the time of the end. So if it doesn't apply to the earthly temple, then what temple does it apply to? Let's find out. Let's look at the New Testament. If you want to look at this verse in your Bible or you can follow on the screen here, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Paul wrote this. I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Some people question that, but I believe that. And regardless, here's what the text says. Of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Here's the New Testament, Hebrews 8, verse 1. This is the sum. We have such a high priest. We do have a high priest. And who is that great high priest? Jesus. It's Jesus, that's right. Jesus is not only the lamb, he's also the priest. He's the high priest. And it says that he is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. So is there a sanctuary up there? Yes. yes. The Bible's very clear on that. Is there a high priest up there? Yes. yes. That's very, very clear. And it is the, it's called the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Now I want to show you a very significant text. Go to Hebrews chapter 8 and take a look at verse 5. Hebrews chapter 8. I want to read this to you right out of the Bible. We just read verses 1 and 2 on the screen. Verse 3 and 4 talks about the, set, the priests on earth who offered sacrifices. It says at the end of verse 4, it talks about the priests who offer gifts according to the law. Verse 5 is talking about those priests. And it says they serve who serve the copy and the shadow of heavenly things. So if the earthly priests served inside of a building that was a copy and a shadow of heavenly things, if the earthly temple had two rooms, what does that say about the heavenly? Two, because it's a copy. If it's a shadow on earth, of what's in heaven, if there's two in the shadow, there must be two in heaven. If, there's, if it's a copy on earth, it must be based on an original in heaven. Now, I don't know if I can do this. Yeah, I can, great. This is a perfect uh, visual aid. How many fingers do I have right there? All right, now you look at, see the shadow on the wall? You see two fingers on the shadow. Now, if there's two fingers on the shadow, then what does that tell you about the original? That's right, get it? Now, it's impossible for there to be two 
two on the shadow and yet really just one in the original. It, that's just not, it just doesn't work. It doesn't fit the imagery. If the earthly is a shadow and it's got the holy place and the most holy place, then the original must have a holy place and a most holy place as well. If language means anything. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you some amazing things in the book of Revelation. Because I'm gonna show you how this is all played out in the last book of the Bible. Some people question the way we interpret Daniel 8 about the 2300 days ending in 1844. I don't have time to study that timeline with you right now, but I could do it if we had time. I've done it many, many times. I've taken whole audiences through Daniel chapter eight, Daniel chapter nine, and I've gone right through it showing that the 2300 days does end in 1844. I can do that scripturally, but that's not the only witness that we have. We also have the book of Hebrews that says that there's a sanctuary up there Jesus is our high priest up there, and that the original uh, is based on, or on the shadow that we have on earth. We have that witness, but we have more than that. We have more than Daniel 8. We have more than the book of Hebrews. We have the book of Revelation. Now, let me show you what's in the book of Revelation. This is absolutely amazing. Revelation walks you through the sanctuary. Let's start with chapter one. Revelation chapter one. If you look at verse five, the very beginning of the book says that this book is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's above all the kings to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So Revelation starts out with a very strong emphasis on the cross, on the place where Jesus Christ shed his blood. And if you look at the earthly sanctuary, the, the animals were sacrificed in the courtyard and their bodies were burned on the altar of incense, or I'm sorry, on the altar of a burnt offering, and the blood was shed. And those sacrifices, as most Christians agree, that the sacrifice of the animals points forward to the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's true. And Revelation chapter one starts out with a focus on the blood, the blood of the lamb who loved us and has washed us from our sins. Now, when you keep reading Revelation chapter one, what happens is that Jesus then appears to John as a priest. If you look at chapter one, verse 10, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, which I believe is the Sabbath day. A lot of Christians think Sunday is the Lord's day, but you can't really prove that from the Bible. Isaiah chapter 58, I think it's verse 13, God says the Sabbath is my holy day. Matthew chapter 12, verse eight, Jesus said the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath day. So the word Lord and the word day is connected to the Sabbath. The, the Lord's day is the day of Jesus, which is his day, which is the seventh day Sabbath. And John was in the spirit on the Lord's day 
And he says, I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And the voice said, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, what you see, write in a book, and send it to these different seven churches which are in Asia. So John hears this voice, he's in the spirit, then verse 12 says he turns around to see the voice that spoke to him, and being turned, what did he see? He says, being turned, I saw, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, this is sanctuary language, is it not? Seven golden candlesticks. Revelation 1 starts out with sanctuary language. And then what happens is, as John sees Jesus, he looks at his dress. He's clothed with the garment down to his feet. He's girded about his chest with a golden band. He's dressed like a priest. On his head, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes are like a flame of fire. There's this uh, amazing, powerful description of Jesus appearing to John. Verse 16, he said, his, his face is just like the sun, shining in its strength. John falls down like a dead man. Jesus puts his hand on him, says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives. I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of hell and of death. And then Jesus explains to him what he just saw. And in verse 20, he says, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So these lampstands also represent the seven churches, and Jesus is seen walking in the midst of the candlesticks, representing that he is in the middle of his church, in the middle of his, his people. Now, I wanna show you something that's really significant. Oh, I pushed my button too quick. I'm gonna go back to that. Turn to chapter four. As John goes through the seven churches and Jesus gives messages to each church, then in, John or in Revelation chapter four, John is taken into a room. Revelation 4 verse 1 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me, and it said, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. So there's a door open, and in his vision, John is taken through that door, and he's taken into a vast room a vast room, and you can read all about this when you read chapter four and five, the throne room, and what's going on inside the throne room. Now, notice verse five. Verse five says, from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, let me push my button here. He's again taken into this room. He sees the seven lamps of fire, and he sees three manifestations of God's power. Lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Do you see that? Three manifestations of God's, of God's power. 
at the golden lampstand. Now, what room was the golden lampstand in? Was it in the most holy place or the holy place? It was in the holy place. And some people say, well, how can God's throne be in the holy place? Here's how. Right opposite the lampstand, which also represents the Holy Spirit, it says are the seven spirits of God, there was a table, a golden table, and on that table were two stacks of bread. Two stacks, and Jesus said that he was the bread of life. And I believe that, ta that table of bread also represents the throne of God. And on that throne, there, it's representing the Father and the Son. And opposite of that is the lampstand representing the Holy Spirit. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are there. Jesus is on the throne in the holy place, which according to the imagery of the sanctuary, the lampstand is in the holy place. And Jesus is represented as our, as our priest inside of the holy place. We see the lampstands in chapter one, and we see the lampstand in chapter four in connection with these three manifestations of God's power. Now, as you go farther into the book of Revelation, let's go to chapter eight. Turn to chapter eight. When you move in, and a lot of different things happen in Revelation, but in chapter eight, verse three, says, then another angel having a golden censer, he came and he stood at the altar and it was given much incense. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Now, now, now where, where is this in the sanctuary? Okay, this is still the holy place, but now we've moved. John has moved from the lampstand. Now he sees a golden altar. It's a golden altar and there's incense coming, right? And the golden altar, it says, before the throne. That's what the Bible says. And the incense, as we'll see, is the righteousness of Jesus mixed with the prayers of God's people. Verse four says the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, he filled it with fire from the altar, and he threw it to the earth. And there were, now notice this, there were manifestations, count them. There were noises, that's one. Thunderings, that's two. Lightnings, that's three, and there's one more. There's an earthquake. So how many is that? Four, that's right. So there we've got the four, okay? So Revelation starts out at the cross. It goes in to the holy place. We see Jesus as a priest walking among the seven golden candlesticks, sanctuary imagery. And then we see the three manifestations at the golden lampstand. And then when you get farther in to chapter eight, you see the golden altar of incense and there are four manifestations of God's power. What's happening here? They're increasing. 
the book of Revelation is moving you deeper and deeper into the sanctuary. That's what's happening. Now, let's go to chapter 11. Actually, we can just quickly look at chapter 9, verse 13. The golden altar is mentioned again in chapter 9. Verse 13, the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So it's being consistent. You have two references to the golden candlesticks in chapter 1 and 4, and then in chapter 8, and in chapter 9, you've got two references to the golden altar of incense. And then we, we move to chapter 11. 11.19. It's actually another reference to the golden altar in chapter 11, verse 1. But when we get to chapter 11, verse 19, then something else happens. 11.19 says, then the temple of God was opened where? So first of all, let's nail this down. Where is this temple? It's in heaven, right? That's what the Bible says. We know from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, we know from Revelation 11, verse 19, that there is a temple. And it's not just called the temple, it's called the temple of God. It's God's temple. If the Jewish people were to rebuild the temple on earth, that temple would never be the temple of God. Never. Because it would be a denial of his son. Especially if they started offering sacrifices. This verse is talking about the temple of God and God's temple is up there. The temple of God was opened in heaven. Now if it's opened, what does that imply? It must have been before it was opened. (laughs) Closed, that's right. The temple was closed during the ministry in the holy place. But once a year in the Jewish economy, that room was opened. And that was the day of atonement when the high priest went into that room. The temple of God was opened in heaven and what is seen? It says the ark of his covenant was seen. Now, now where are we now at this point? Now we're in the most holy place. That's where the ark is. And notice it says the ark of his covenant was seen. That little word seen is important. Throughout the book of Revelation, John will say things like, I saw, I heard, I fell down at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But in this verse, he doesn't say the temple was opened and I saw the ark. He doesn't say that. He says there was seen in his temple the ark. Now, if the, if the ark, if, if he would have said I saw the ark, that would have meant, meant just he saw it. But when it says there was seen, what does that imply? That, yeah, or at least more people. More people see it. A lot of people see it. They see it by faith as they study their Bibles. In 1844, 
The Millerites, following uh, the preaching of William Miller, they were called Millerites, the early Adventist Millerites, who believed Jesus was coming in 1844. They believed the sanctuary was the earth and that Jesus was going to come and cleanse the world by fire. That didn't happen. They went through a disappointment and then they restudied their Bibles. They said, where did we go wrong? They looked at the 2300-day prophecy and that looks right. We can't see anything wrong with the time. So what about the sanctuary? We've always thought the sanctuary was the earth and then they began to restudy the sanctuary. And as they restudied the sanctuary, they looked at Hebrews. They saw the copy shadow words. They looked at Revelation. They saw that there's a temple of God up there. Not on earth, it's up there. And they, they saw the door opened. Remember in Revelation 4 verse 1, John says there was a door opened and he was taken up into the holy place where the candlesticks were. That's Revelation 4 verse 1. But then in Revelation 11, the temple is opened again. And the ark, and it says the ark was seen. And what happened was after 1844, the Adventists continued to study and they finally were directed up there and they realized the temple is up there they realized the ark is up there and by faith they understood that. And they realized that the cleansing of the sanctuary based on the Old Testament was when the high priest went into the most holy place to cleanse the sanctuary. And they realized, ah, it's the cleansing of the sanctuary up above and in our lives to get us ready for when the high priest comes out and comes down to get us. They put the pieces together and they thought, all right, now wait a minute. If the ark is up there, if the temple's up there, if now we're in the most holy place and the ark is up there, they, by faith, they, they lifted up the lid. They thought, what's underneath the lid? And they looked and what did they discover? What's inside the ark? They discovered that inside the ark were 10 commandments. That's right. And that's what the Bible teaches. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 3 and 4, it describes the 10 commandments written with the finger of God were placed inside the ark. And so they said, wow, there's 10 commandments inside the ark. 10 of them. So they started counting them. Number one, God first. Number two, no idols. Number three, don't take God's name in vain. Number four, <gasps> remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord. That's what the fourth commandment says. And so then they started thinking, wow, seventh day. We're already Adventists. We believe Jesus is coming, but we're not seventh day Adventists yet. They were just Adventists. They were Methodist Adventists. They were Baptist Adventists. They were Congregationalist Adventists. They were all kinds of different Adventists. But after the disappointment, after they restudied their Bibles, after they saw the temple open and went into the most holy place by faith and lifted up the golden lid and saw the ark and then went down one, two, three, four and discovered the seventh day Sabbath, then as time went on, they eventually adopted a name. 
and the name was Seventh-day Adventist. Seventh-day Adventist. And all of this is based upon the prophecy. Now, watch this. Look at the last part of verse 19. Verse 19 says, and there were lightnings. How many is that? One. And there were noises. How many is that? Two. And there were thunderings. How many is that? Three. And there, were, there was an earthquake. How many is that? Four. And it says there was a great hail. Five. Five manifestation. Let me push my button here. Here we go. Five manifestations. So Revelation starts in the holy place with the lampstands. Jesus is our high priest. And there's three manifestations at the golden lampstand. And then it moves deeper and it gets to the golden altar of incense. And there's four manifestations of God's power. And then finally, it moves deeper and deeper and deeper, and the door is opened into the most holy place. Do you see the sequence? I tell you, this is powerful information. We don't, we don't just need Daniel 8 and 9. We don't just need the book of Hebrews. We've also got the book of Revelation. The Bible says that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. We've got lots of witnesses, all kinds of witnesses, especially Revelation. It walks you right through the sanctuary and it moves you right in to the most holy place. The most holy place is the hot spot of the book of Revelation. It really is. It is the, it's the heart of what God is doing on earth and what he's doing up in heaven what he's trying to do on earth. It is, uh, it's the, I call it, call it the master control room. It's the center of Jesus Christ's operation. Operation Rescue Sinners is rooted and it comes out of the most holy place. That's what the Bible said. I can't tell you how many people I've studied the Bible with and I've shown them this and the lights just go on. Boom, 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 boom. Seventh-day Adventists didn't just make this up. No matter what our critics say, we're not mixed up. We really have the Bible on our side. It really is there in the Word of God. It's not just the sacrifice that was fulfilled in Jesus' coming. We also have the sanctuary, the holy place, the most holy place, it takes you right through in the book of Revelation and really it's crystal clear. Now when you go down at, to the end of Revelation uh, 12, the very next chapter, the next chapter is about the woman and the dragon and the remnant. Revelation 12, 17 concludes with the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is the first time in the book of Revelation that a commandment-keeping people is revealed. In Revelation 12, 17. And if you look at the flow, if you look at the sequence, what happened was as the 
Adventists went through the disappointment and then they discovered the heavenly temple and the ark, lifted up the lid, looked down by faith into the Ten Commandments and discovered that the Sabbath was there and that God wanted them to become commandment keepers, then they decided to, to do just that. And by the grace of God, to become commandment keepers. And that's how the Seventh-day Adventist Church really came into existence. It's a movement based on prophecy. Now, it's also significant that uh, when the disciples of Jesus followed Christ, they, they didn't quite understand some things. They thought that when Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey, they thought he was gonna set himself up on the throne and he was going to rule from Israel over all nations and they were gonna be at his right hand and on his left hand. But they didn't, were, were they real followers of Jesus? Were they, were they uh, real Christians? They were. Did they make a mistake? They did. They made a big mistake. Instead of Jesus sitting on the throne, he hung on a cross. So they went through a, a terrible disappointment, didn't they? A huge disappointment when Jesus came the first time. But then on the other side of that disappointment, Jesus rose from the dead and gave them a Bible study and said, let's study the Bible a little more closely and you'll see that this has all happened according to the fulfillment of prophecy. And then their hopes were resurrected. And then they had a new message to give to the world, is that he had been resurrected from the dead. There's a very uh, perfect parallel between what happened to the disciples in the time of Jesus and what happened to the Millerites. They also based their movement on prophecy. They were right about the time, but wrong about the event just like the disciples. They were right that the time was, was there, but they misinterpreted the event. Jesus was gonna die on a cross, not sit on a throne. They were disappointed. On the other side of their disappointment, they restudied their Bible and it all came together. Same thing happened in 1844. The, the, the real Christians, the Millerites, went through the disappointment, restudied their Bible. Jesus taught them to look a little bit closer on the other side of the disappointment, then they realized they had, a, they had another message. They had a bigger message to be given, to give to the world. That they were part of the movement that God had raised up in the end times to give a special message to the world. Now let me just show you these briefly. Uh, the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy 10, 4, and 5, we know they're in the ark. We know from Revelation 12, verse 17 that a remnant would develop on earth. And we know from Revelation chapter 14 that this movement then would give a message, which is the messages of the three angels, which I'll study more with you tomorrow. But look at verse seven. Revelation 14, verse seven. 14, seven. Here's the first angel's message saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Now in the Old Testament, during what part of the sanctuary service was it really like the day of judgment? It was the day of atonement. That's right, when the sanctuary was to be cleansed. And here it says the hour of judgment has come, it has arrived. 
And then it says, worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And this is practically a direct quote at the end of verse seven from the fourth commandment that says the seventh day is the Sabbath. In six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. So these people that go into the most holy place, they see the ark, they see the law, they see the Sabbath, they see the 10 commandments, they start keeping the 10 commandments, and then they start preaching a message. Here's the prophecy that gets them into the most holy place. There's the prophecy about how they start keeping the commandments on earth, and then there's the prophecy about what they have to say to the world. It all fits. It fits perfectly, and it is as biblical as biblical can be. And we know that in verse 14, Jesus returns, and that tells us that we're in a judgment time right before he comes. There is a time period where judgment comes right before he comes. Now, we're moving into the heart of this. I've got a little more than 10 minutes. I've taken you through a lot, and now I want to move right into the heart of it all. The most holy place is the hot spot. It's the control room. It's the center of Jesus Christ's activity. He's up there right now in the most holy place. We know that the Ten Commandments are a major part of the Day of Atonement. We know that. But it's not just the law that is a major part of the Day of Atonement. On top of that golden box, underneath which was the Ten Commandments, there was a lid. And what was that lid called? The mercy seat. The mercy seat. Ah. The what? The mercy. the mercy seat. You like the sound of that? Yeah. The mercy seat. Praise God. And not only was there a mercy seat, but there was something placed on top of that mercy seat. There was blood. That's right, blood. And that blood was sprinkled, the Bible says, with the finger of the, of the high priest. He sprinkled that blood on top of that golden lid, and he did it how many times? Seven. Yeah, seven, which is God's perfect number. So there's mercy, the mercy seat. There's the blood, and the blood is sprinkled seven times. Not just once, not just twice, not just three times. How many times did Naaman dip in the water? Seven, Seven that's right. And God is, is using the imagery of the sanctuary to teach us there is power in the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. So when we see the law and we realize that we've, we've sinned, God wants to direct our minds to the high priest, to the mercy seat, to the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat seven times. And that tells me there's not a one of us whose sins are so bad that they can't be totally and completely washed away in the blood of the lamb. Amen. Hallelujah. Yes. I tell you, isn't this exciting? The sanctuary even the message of the judgment, which points us to the blood, because Revelation 14, 7 announces the judgment, but verse 6 talks about the everlasting gospel. 
So the judgment and the gospel are presented together. The law and the blood go together. They go right together in the sanctuary service. The blood of Jesus is powerful. The blood was placed on the, on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and the horns of the altar of incense. Horns represent power, showing that there is power in the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you wonder whether your sins are too dark to be forgiven? Do you wonder whether, you know, maybe you, you've just, you've gone too far and you've done too many things? Uh, you know, we all, have, we all have skeletons in our closets, don't we? I've been thinking recently about uh, Bill Cosby. What a tragedy. From the world's perspective, he's a bright light that has gone out. He was the most beloved American comedian probably of all time. And now all of this information has come out. What a tragedy. And I just, I, would, I was thinking about him today and I hope that Bill will, uh, will really just come clean. Come clean. Set an example of, of, of acknowledging his sin and asking for forgiveness. I, mean, I think the evidence is pretty clear from all the testimonies that have come out. I mean, I'm not, I'm not the judge, but uh, my point in sharing this is that we all have skeletons in our closets. Maybe not those kind of skeletons, but we all have skeletons. And the good news is that Jesus' blood is able to cleanse us from our skeletons. Amen. His blood has power to cleanse us, no matter what we've done, no matter how dark our past, no matter how secret our sins are that nobody knows about. This talk is called Sanctuary Secrets. The Bible says that God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it's good or whether it's evil. This is the time for us to take the secrets out of our hearts and to give them to God and to trust him that our high priest is able to wash those sins away. That's what the sanctuary is all about. The day of atonement, the purpose of the day of atonement was not just to cleanse a building. Jesus' goal is not just to cleanse a building. It's not just to blot out sins in a record book. That's not his ultimate goal. His ultimate goal is to blot out sins in the human heart. Amen. To cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. That is the goal of the day of atonement. So often, I, I fear in our church, we, uh, we, get, we get lost in the timeline, and I believe in the 2300 day timeline, I do, I believe it's biblical. I believe we can prove it from the Bible. I believe we can prove our message from Hebrews. I believe we can prove our message in Revelation. God has raised up this movement for a reason, and, and, and we're under attack. We're under attack by the devil trying to get us to, to get mixed up and to lose our understanding of this message but it's in the Bible. The message is, is here. It's in the book, isn't it? 
It is, and the ultimate, we, and we get lost sometimes in, well, yeah, I've heard about the 2300 days and the cleansing of the sanctuary, 1844, and now what? Now what? The ultimate goal of this prophecy is to bring us into the most holy place so we see the law, we see what God wants to do in our lives, and we see Jesus, and we see the blood, and we see his goal is to cleanse. The whole purpose of the Advent movement is to cleanse the sanctuary, which involves cleansing people right there. It says it right there, to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. That's what the Day of Atonement is all about. I've got five minutes left, and I'll just share a couple more thoughts. Uh, Matthew 26, 28, Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus longs to forgive our sins. He longs to forgive your, your sins. His blood is enough for you. It's enough for me. But we have to realize that we have to be willing to give up those sins. Remember, there's two groups on the Day of Atonement. There's those that are cleansed and those who are cut off. Those who are cut off are those that really just don't want to be cleansed. But there's those who are cleansed are those who really want it, and Jesus will give it to them. He will give them that cleansing. All right, let's go to the last chapter of the Bible, and we'll finish up with the last chapter. Now we go all the way down to Revelation 22. Revelation 22, last chapter. Revelation walks us through the sanctuary. It teaches us the, the message and the, the meaning of the message. Centered in Christ, centered in his blood and what he wants to do for us and how much he loves us. Revelation 22 verse 10 says, he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is what? The time is at hand, the time is near. We've gone through the cross, we've been through the, the lampstand, we've, we've been to the altar of incense, we've been into the most holy place, we know where we are now. But I tell you, Jesus is not gonna be in the most holy place forever. There comes a time when the high priest comes out. When he comes out and he comes down. Verse 11, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to give every man according to his work. These verses are describing the finishing of Jesus' ministry in the most holy place. When he finally says it's done and the two groups are crystallized. One group is cleansed, the other group is cut off. It's the end of the Day of Atonement. And as you look at these verses, it's very clear. There's gonna be those that are unjust and filthy. God wants to take injustice out of us. If, uh, he wants us to be just people, to do justice to be fair, to do what's right, to not have prejudice, 
or pride. He also doesn't want us to be filthy with the filth of this world, with all the things that are on the internet and all the things that are out there in this wicked world that's trying to pull people down into filthy, filthy, filthy sin. If we're filthy and if we're unjust, praise the Lord, we can still be cleansed. <laughs> Hallelujah. But at some point, Jesus is going to say, the cleansing opportunity is over. And at that point, we're either going to be on one side or the other. We're either going to be unjust still and filthy still, or we're going to be on the side of, of being righteous, which means doing what's right, and the side of being holy. And the only way we can get from one side to the other side is through the blood of Jesus Christ and through the cleansing of Jesus and through the power of Jesus. Jesus is preparing a people who are righteous and holy, who are not unjust, who are not filthy. And that's the time that we're in. And when he's done with his work, then it says he's going to come. Then he will, he will close up shop, close up sanctuary, and he will put on, take his priesthood garments off, put on his kingly robes, gather the angels and say it's time to go down to the earth, down, down, down to the earth to pick up my people who have let me cleanse them from all their sins through the power of my blood and let me change their lives so they do what's right and they're ready for the second coming. That's what it's all about. That's why this series is called Get Ready, Get Ready, Get Ready. I don't know how much longer Jesus is going to be in the most holy place. I don't know, but thankfully, he's still there. He's still there, and this is our chance. This is our chance to accept him and to be cleansed. Praise the Lord. It's, uh, it's 3.30. Uh, let's pray. If you can kneel, kneel. If not, just remain seated. Let's pray, and let's uh, talk to Jesus in the most holy place and ask him to cleanse our lives and get us ready for heaven. Dear Father in heaven, in the name of our Savior Jesus, we come to you. Thank you for this, this Bible study. What a wonderful Bible study we've had. And Lord, we, we, now we know from your word that you are in the most holy place and you are, you're longing to cleanse your people from sin through the blood that you shed on the cross. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us, for, forgive Bill Cosby and help him to, to come clean, to come to you. He also can be cleansed. Help all of us, Lord. Help us to take the skeletons out of our closets. Help us to confess to you our secret sins. You know them anyway. Lord, wash us in this day of atonement. Apply your blood to our lives Wash us clean, make us clean, and prepare us for heaven to live with you forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed today's broadcast with Steve Wolberg. We feel privileged to be a part of God's commission to share the gospel message with the world. You too can be a part of our gospel outreach team by supporting broadcasts just like these with your financial gifts. We strive to be careful with every dollar that we receive, 
knowing these donations are sacred gifts to build up God's kingdom of grace and salvation. To find other great resources or to donate online, go to whitehorsemedia.com or you can call us at 1-800-78-BIBLE. That's 1-800-782-4253. You can follow us on Twitter at Whitehorse7 or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Steve Wolberg. That's Steve, W-O-H-L-B-E-R-G. If you prefer to contact us by mail, write to Whitehorse Media, P.O. Box 1139, Newport, Washington, 99156. Thanks for your support, and may God bless your day.